This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In the headlines, a dire report out by the American Hotel Lodging Association says that one in four hotel workers could lose their jobs in Hawaii as a result of the COVID-19 downturn, which some worry could last six months. We talked to Mufi Hanneman, who represents the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association, about the impact on our number one industry. This is a very difficult, stressful time for us, especially those uh, who are in management positions overseeing these properties. Uh, It's not easy, certainly when you're dealing with people's lives, not only from a financial point of view, but also from uh, health and safety. Uh, You can see how this is keeping many of us uh, awake at night. That being said, uh, it is uh, unprecedented uh, what we're going through. may have had similar situations in the past, but this coronavirus from the federal government to locally here, you know, it sort of stuck up and it came up quickly. Now is not the time to point fingers. I think it's more important that we work together and we're trying our best to ensure that uh, people are gainfully employed. But it's uh, getting difficult each and every day uh, with the news that we continue to get about cancellations uh, or closures uh, that are all taking place. It is pretty remarkable when you think that we are telling tourists don't come, go away. Yes, uh, you know, we've always prided ourselves, however, on being a place of great priority. It's placed on public health and safety. I know when I was mayor, it was always my big calling card whenever we would try to compete with other cities and states and lowering conventions or events. I always put that on the table. And I think when the governor has come to the realization is that we can't guarantee that in this environment of uh, coronavirus. And therefore, um, this difficult decision of trying to limit, contain the virus, not just for uh, locally here, but also visitors who have been known to bring it for the first nine cases that were reported, came from people that were visiting Hawaii, see why he had to make that difficult decision. And difficult it is for us and challenging for us in the hospitality industry to try to endure and comply with everything he's recommending that we do. Uh, We know that it's a critical part of being able to have uh, a healthy place to live, work, and play. You have experience, you know, on the federal level and the local level, so you can certainly appreciate some of the difficult decisions that, you know, our community leaders are are having to make and, and being put in this uh, really unprecedented time. Yes, I, I do. I do empathize with them because I have uh, been on that side of the ledger, being a public official. As a private citizen now and in my responsibility as heading the largest private sector visitor industry organization in the state, where some 220,000 jobs uh, are part of and what we do, uh, you know, I, I feel it uh, just as much as I did back then. Uh, and, you know, as these decisions are made as these recommendations are made um, you know we just uh, you know there will always be those that will second guess or question is it really necessary at this time but because we don't have a handle how long this is going to be around we know that the virus is a year or so away a vaccine I should say is a year or so away all these things you know, make one realize that yeah you know it, it have to be done as painful as it is but at the same time we're also asking government as they have these directives to also let us know, both as an industry and as the people of the state of Hawaii, that you know government is going to have to step in big time and also provide some relief because we can only uh, keep workers employed for uh, employed for as long as we can, uh, and despite all the losses that are taking place. But you know the short-term, long-term relief uh, that government can do, whether it's unemployment benefits keeping the benefits of the workers, 
maintaining that or short-term loans to business owners with uh, no interest rate or very low interest rate. There's a lot of things at the table, and I know everybody wants to help. Uh, so uh, it would also require a coordinated effort by our federal officials, our state officials, and county officials, whether it's tax abatement, whatever it is. I think all of that stuff has to be put on the table. And the sooner they can put that package and communicate it, I think it'll help uh, some of the folks who are being directly impacted some of these decisions cope with it and also because uh, some of them have a lot of employees under their employ or you know a few employees but nonetheless uh, we have to also think of them uh, in terms of how they're going to cope with the situation and what's your sense as far as the hotel owners and what they might uh, provide for their workers you know, there, there's concern by the union, you know, about, you know, medical benefits, that kind of thing. Yes, well, that, that's why I'm saying, you know, first of all, is their health and safety. So we're doing everything we can uh, to make sure that we only want healthy employees at work. We're being very understanding and flexible uh, for those that uh, are not well or they have a loved one uh, that they need to take care of. Uh, everybody is doing that across the board. And as we try to maintain a workforce, uh, as best we can, you know, government can make that responsibility a lot easier, especially maybe in helping us uh, with some of the benefits. Uh, I like the fact that the governor has reduced uh, the waiting time now for unemployment uh, benefits by a week. You no longer have to uh, wait for a week for a response. You can basically almost get it right away. Uh, those are the kind of things we need. But most importantly, uh, you know, the industry has contributed a lot of money to the state's economy through the years, through the collection of the TAT, transit accommodation taxes, as well as the uh, property taxes that they collect at the county level. Uh, we'd like to see some of that now go back uh, to assisting the very industry that has been also helping the rest of the state during good times. Now that we are going through these difficult times of trying to keep as many people employed, and for some of them, they're going to have to uh, see their hours cut and maybe possibly also lose their job temporarily or short term uh, or properties may have to make that difficult decision of closing whether it's a couple months or three months or maybe closing um, just ceasing operations you don't want to talk about it, you don't want to go down that path but because we don't have a sense of when this is all going to come to an end and when we can get to a good place all those options are on the table so you know, I would ask the legislature during this period where they're not meeting in session this is kind of time where they can collectively maybe get some ideas together on how they can assist us uh, and then with the governor working with them and the same goes for county governments and for our delegation in Washington DC uh, the administration is moving something forward very quickly working with Congress sooner that we can know uh, when that relief may be coming exactly how it can be applied here locally I think the better off we'll all be to provide that hope and real economic um, help and assistance uh, for those that are being negatively impacted. That was Mufi Hanneman, who represents the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. We also reached out to the Hotel Workers Union. Eric Gill is a leader of Unite Here Local 5, which represents thousands of hotel workers and healthcare workers at Kaiser. He's been openly critical of the federal government's response and the lack of response so far from hotel owners. We have, you know, hundreds of people already laid off, more layoffs coming. We're seeing closures of rooms and closures of certain departments and so on and so forth. So we're already experiencing pretty high rate of unemployment where we 
are trying to deal with that and uh, give people as much help as we can uh, through that process. The industry across the country has been harder hit, and so we expect that harder hits are coming for us as well. Some of the hotels still have you know, a decent amount of guests, you know, 30, 40% occupancy perhaps. Uh, however, next week, you know, those old bookings are going to be gone and new bookings aren't happening, especially with the governor basically requesting people not to book trip to Hawaii. So there well may be uh, hotel closures, as there have been already in other parts of the country. Um, I think everybody knows pretty much the entire Vegas Strip was closed. Um, all those people are unemployed, um, and uh, in many many cities we have uh, full or partial closures already. Some cities it appears that the communities may be trying to turn closed hotels into quarantine stations for coronavirus patients. So we expect a lot more impact. It's already heavy. We've got many many families not working right now, and obviously unemployment is a help but it's a fraction of what families formerly made. So there's been a, a heavy impact on people so far. I think, too, reading the news articles and seeing the, the names like, you know, Marriott, big names and hotels that are saying, okay, we're, we're closing. Hotels are lagging badly on this. Uh, we are not happy about that. These are our biggest employers and the largest groups of our members, and the hotel employers have been unresponsive to our various proposals for continuation of health care, opening up of sick leave banks, you know, basic measures to try to assist working families who are going to be really struggling, are already struggling now, and it's going to be worse and worse as weeks go by. So this is in contrast, for example, to the Las Vegas casinos, which I understand are paying people to stay home right now. And although that may not last forever, they are doing that. They're not just sending them on unemployment, they're sending them home with pay. That's also been true for some of our food service people. We have a, a deal in hand, I believe, with Compass, which is one of our big food service employers, and they, do, you know, they basically do food service in institutions, you know, universities and big business buildings and so on and so forth. They're sending their people home with pay. That's not happening in the hotels. In fact, the hotels have been unwilling to respond to our proposals. Hilton has told us they're not going to respond to our proposals, that they don't think they have to bargain with us. We think that's abhorrent. We've been talking to Kyoya. We don't have a response yet on whether or not they're going to continue medical, or they did agree to not be punitive with workers who are still working, who call in sick, but that doesn't do anything for the people who are laid off, who are in more need. Marriott put out its press release. We're glad to hear that since they didn't call us or tell us what they were going to do, and we still don't know the details of that. They put out a press release, we're going to cover medical. Well, that raises many questions that they haven't even contacted us. So, you know, how are they going to cover medical? Who are they going to cover? How long are they going to cover medical? All those are important questions we haven't heard. You know, that's not to say that hotels won't step up to the plate. We believe that some will, and we're in discussion with them. But I'm very disappointed in the hotel industry portion of our union because our hotel employers have been themselves heavily impacted, of course, we understand that, but they've been unwilling so far to make commitments to workers. So you're saying, where is the aloha for our workers? Well, yeah, and you've got to look at this. You know, Marriott, you know, they know well. I mean, we had a nice national fight with Marriott. You know, in 2017, the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, while it was eliminating stuff like pandemic protection provisions, 
gave a big tax break to the corporations, and Marriott and all the rest of them put hundreds of millions of dollars into their own pocket, buying back stock, putting out uh, extra profits to investors and stuff like that. And they did not create jobs, didn't do any of that. And now they have eaten our tax money and used it to make themselves wealthy. And now that it's time to share, uh, they can't be found and are not returning calls. So this is uh, absolutely unacceptable. It's also unacceptable what's happening at the government level. I'm, I'm pleased, of course, that the government is saying we're going to be putting you know, money to help deal with this. But you know, let's be clear on what happened here just in the last week. You know, the House Democrats passed a relief bill that included sick leave for workers. One in five American workers might have got something of that. It goes over to the Senate, and uh, McConnell and the Trump people cut the sick leave piece out entirely. So the fact is this relief will probably go to corporations as it did after 9-11, where, in essence, we bought these companies and then gave it back to the people that ruined the economy in the first place. We're going to see that happening again. So. The response of the federal government to this has been criminally negligent so far, and now it's going to be cynically overreacting uh, to enrich the rich. So obviously we have something to say about that. Can you talk about how maybe your members have as much cushion to you know, protect themselves from this blow? You, know, you talked about how a lot of your workers hold several jobs. And I don't know if, if the second job they have is in the hospitality industry or somewhere else, so they might have some income coming in. Many of our cooks, our food preparation people, have multiple jobs, and they have them in other restaurants, which are now closed. We have many members who are married to each other, you know, and so they're both getting laid off at the same time. We've got many of those, and the outside employment is also drying up. I mean, some of our members do side work for vacation rentals. Well, they're not getting bookings either. The normal ways that workers have tried to cope with the high cost of living, high cost of housing here in Hawaii are also being compromised and drying up. So it's a double whammy for represent, them. You know, a couple thousand people at, at Kaiser, and those people are going to be busy working. But Kaiser itself is going to have to make some adjustments in its network, how it does it, because they're experiencing a shortage of supplies, something easily foreseeable by our government that was looking the other way and lying its head off. Uh, so there's critical shortage uh, developing here for masks and gowns and booties and gloves that our healthcare workers need to protect themselves while they take care of the rest of us who are sick. And um, so that's a real problem. And so, you know, obviously we have concern for our workers in the healthcare industry as well, although right now they're not getting laid off, and so they don't have that piece of the problem. Do, do you they know? Do obviously, have a frontline role in actually dealing with the contagion. So it's kind of hazard, hazard pay right now. Do you know uh, roughly, you know, what percentage of hotel workers have been either laid off or had their hours cut? Do you have a sense? Well, we're trying to wrap our arms around it. Every day we're getting new layoffs, and I, I think we're talking about half now and the other half shortly, and some places more than half, some places less. The people, that, the hotels that were most, most impacted in the early period, meaning last week, you know, and things moved so fast, were those in Waikiki with heavy exposure to the Asian market, you know, Chinese, Koreans, 
tourists, you know, dropped off some months ago. Those are smaller numbers, but the Japanese uh, tourist uh, is a much larger percentage, especially for Waikiki beachfront hotels that rely heavily on the Japanese trade. So, you know, we saw bigger cuts there, and then we saw last week, you know, places like Turtle Bay and Neighbor Islands were still running 70%, perhaps. Well, that was last week, and we're down to like 10% in some of those places as mainland bookings dry up or are not, uh, you know, not made. You know, so some of that, some of that travel that we are seeing the tail end of is old bookings that people didn't want to walk away from, but we're not getting new bookings, and so the, you know, the prospect over the next weeks and months is pretty bleak. That was Eric Gill, uh, union leader of Unite Here, Local 5, expressing his concern about health benefits for thousands of hotel workers if they're laid off their jobs during this downturn. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. This week on Says You. Uh, I am sure that there is a handful, or maybe a large handful, of people in our audience who know the answer, so audience, tell us. Oh, <laughs> this is the smartest group of people you are likely to encounter, which means it's an abstruse question beyond reckoning. A game as fast as it's fun, and everyone's a winner, says you. Tonight at 6.30, following Marketplace. Our reality check story today has a catchy headline, Last Call. It's a new reality for bars and restaurants as Honolulu's mayor has issued some new directives in an effort to keep the public safe. Honolulu Civil Beats politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Last call. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, for alcohol and other things as well. Um, this is from Blaze Lovell and Christina Jedra, our reporters who are out running around doing reporting uh, as we all are trying to get news for our Uh, our listeners and our readers. But yeah, the mayor ordered uh, here on Oahu mandating bars and restaurants ban public seating and provide takeout only. That goes in effect tomorrow. Uh, It is obviously an aggressive effort to halt the spread of the coronavirus as well. All city parks are being closed and facilities run by the city like the Honolulu Zoo, the Blaisdell Center, uh, municipal golf courses. This, of course, follows Governor Ige's a somewhat uh, confusing directive the day before, uh, saying that not only does he want tourists to stay away from 30 days, but indicating that restaurants and bars uh, really should close if they could. But following that action, the mayor made it clear what he wants done, at least on Oahu. Right. And then is there some issue, though, about what authority that he's got? 
Yeah, there is. And in Blaze's report, and by the way, this is for the next 15 days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was some confusion at the press conference. The The mayor did not cite uh, a specific statute, said he did receive the advice of city attorneys, suggested that there may be some emergency laws that might need to be put into place. Uh, Blaze did call uh, the Corporation Council and still couldn't quite make clear where that was coming from. It was also somewhat vague on what the specific punishment would be or how HBD would enforce that. And so those are things I'm sure hopefully are going to become clear uh, in the next day or so, especially as this new edict goes into effect. I mean, yeah, that's the weekend. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if police are really going to have it as their top priority to go and shut down a bar. But again, stressing the takeout. Uh, and that, of course, will probably keep a lot of restaurants still going. This comes on top of the city council uh, moving to approve $130 million in, in rainy day funds for the city to utilize. The mayor did say there are no layoffs planned. Uh, essential personnel include police and firefighters and lifeguards, and they will be staying on the job. Well, I, I know you've got your side job playing in a van. I guess uh, no, uh, <laughs> no gigs for you. <laughs> no, no gigs for the for the short term. Um, you know, we should probably already add uh, Mayor Kawakami on Kauai, as we know, instituted that nightly curfew, which will begin this Friday. There are some exceptions to it. And then Mayor Victorino on Maui. Also uh, trying to limit public gatherings at food establishments, theaters, and so forth. Uh, Grocery stores and pharmacies are still open. I think that's very important to stress uh, for everyone. Well, the park closure, though, is interesting because I initially thought, oh, gosh, when I if I go swimming, I can't go to the bathroom now. And then I thought, well, gee, what about all the homeless people? Right. And this this is comes up in the story. And this comes from Christina Jedra's reporting. You know, there are about twenty four hundred uh, unsheltered homeless uh, on Oahu. Many of them live in the parks. And if the parks are closed, they're going to have to go elsewhere. And if the bathrooms are going to close, that's going to compound things even further. And that's something that. Homeless advocates, people that try and help the homeless, have have raised worries over what's going to happen there. Are we showing enough concern to help them? Uh, There are no curfew plans as yet in place for Oahu, but one wonders whether that might be a next step. Yeah, I really worry about the uh, sanitation thing because, I mean, gosh, you know, you can't really find plastic bags anymore. No, there's, that's another good point. As he, I think other advice that's coming forward, along with this trying to keep people, what's the term, social distancing, the six mm-hmm. feet away and whatnot. If at all possible, if you have to do business with the city, applying for a permit or renewals, whatever the case might be, paying property taxes, um, they are encouraging online. Do that online as best as you can uh, to reduce the interaction uh, with other human beings. Right. Yeah. It it is a dilemma, you know, and I know, uh, you know, the whole question of like, yeah, who's an essential worker exactly? Um, You know, we've seen those determinations during uh, strike time, but um, this is a little unusual. It is. There are many people, uh, of course, everyone in the world is talking about this right now, but some have compared it to the time after 9-11. Others have gone back further and said, it reminds me of wartime during World Mm. War Two, of course, that's before our time, but uh, also the Depression. And um, we don't want to scare anybody, but I think the one obvious thing to state is this is literally changing hour by hour, minute by minute. And government officials, as well as everybody in the private sector, as well as everybody, period, are trying to respond as best they can with this, uh, this 
totally unexpected, although it was forecast by some experts, this worldwide pandemic. I guess that's repetitive, isn't it? Worldwide pandemic. Yes. Well, you know, um, I remember when I first heard that term shelter in place in San Francisco, Mm, I thought of the gridiron. This is not a drill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can already imagine the skits next year. The the terms that I keep in mind the most is uh, hunker down. I I like that phrase that's been used uh, by a number of officials, hunker down, shelter in place, but also remember to aloha, help each other. Yes, Yeah, be kind. This is time. Okay, and last call. Chad Blair, thank you. Thank you. That was Honolulu Civil Beat uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read ongoing coverage of the COVID-19 impacts, you can check out civilbeat.org. And as the coronavirus crisis continues to impact us here in Hawaii and globally, we now share the latest developments with this daily report from the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC. Hello, this is the Coronavirus Global Update on the 19th of March. I'm Andrew Peach. Italy and France are set to extend their coronavirus shutdowns. China has recorded no new homegrown cases of the coronavirus. The 34 new infections in China were all among people coming into the country from abroad. Here's Stephen McDonnell. To go from more than 80,000 infected people here to a 24-hour period where, according to official figures, there's been not one extra homegrown case in all of the country. If those figures are to be believed, it's an incredible turnaround. Even if the trend is true, it's an incredible turnaround. And in Wuhan City, where this global emergency first started, the government has announced that people will be able to go outdoors now. Italy's government has said the nationwide lockdown imposed to contain the spread of the coronavirus will be extended beyond the end of next week, when it was due to expire. Nearly 3,000 people have died there, almost as many as in China, where the outbreak began in December. On Wednesday, Italy reported 475 more deaths, the highest figure in a single day from any country. Stefano Faguli is a doctor working in Bergamo in northern Italy. He's issued this plea for help. We are in full emergency with this coronavirus pandemia. Our health personnel, nurses and physicians are working round the clock countless hours to fight this incredible situation. We do not know how long this pandemia will last. Here's our correspondent in Rome, Sima Katecha. Thousands of people have been fined for not abiding by the rules and in the north where there's the highest number of coronavirus cases, officials are warning that hospitals are close to turning people away from treatment because they're struggling to cope with the high number of patients. In Bergamo, the military has been brought in to move dozens of coffins from the city to other regions as crematoriums are overwhelmed with the number of dead. Health officials in Iran say the coronavirus is now killing one person every 10 minutes. Another 149 people have died in the past day. In Jordan, the army's begun imposing restrictions on access to the capital Amman in a bid to control the spread of the virus. Egypt has ordered the closure of all cafes, shopping malls and nightclubs from dusk till dawn. Brazilians have been expressing their anger at the president, Jair Bolsonaro's handling of the coronavirus pandemic by taking part in protests from their balconies, banging pots and pans together and chanting, Bolsonaro out. So far, Brazil has had around 500 cases. Gabriel Stargarter is a Reuters journalist in Rio de Janeiro. 
they're angry because they think that Bolsonaro has minimized, made light, disparaged the severity of this crisis. And now that the death toll is rising and the, and the number of cases are really shooting up, there are real concerns that Brazil, which has had a bit of rotten luck over the last few years in terms of its economy, there is a sort of educational project going on in terms of trying to tell people how dangerous this is. Donald Trump has signed an emergency economic relief bill that would provide free testing for COVID-19 and paid leave for certain workers in the United States. The presidential approval came after the U.S. Senate voted overwhelmingly in favour of the measure worth about $100 billion. Australia and New Zealand are closing their borders to all foreigners to try to stop the spread of the coronavirus. More details from Michael Bristow. The ban will come into force in Australia on Friday evening. New Zealand's border closure, the first in its history, has already come into effect. The announcements about the issue came almost simultaneously after talks between the two governments. In both countries, returning residents will be allowed in but will have to go into quarantine for 14 days. Levels of air pollutants and gases over some cities and regions are showing significant drops as people travel much less and work from home. Researchers in New York say carbon monoxide levels, mainly from cars, have almost halved and emissions of carbon dioxide have also fallen sharply. Professor Roisin Kamein from Columbia University was involved in the study. Last weekend was the cleanest I have ever seen the air around New York. Some of that is driven by meteorology, so the weather, how still the air is, has a big effect. But it's still the cleanest we have ever seen the city. The Olympic flame has been formally handed over to Japan for a summer games that Tokyo says will go ahead despite the coronavirus pandemic. There are calls for the games to be called off. Matthew Pinsent is a four-time Olympic gold medalist. On a global front, we have other priorities. And I think the Olympics should at the very least be saying we should postpone or indeed we should just cancel at this stage and we'll talk about postponement later on. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. I'm Andrew Peach. Till next time, goodbye. Hello, I'm Bob Ross. Many of us think we can learn how to do difficult things with how-to videos. Just pull. But it turns out watching is easier than doing. I think I'm tricking my mind into think that, you know, oh, I'm gaining that skill, I watched the video, I know how to do it. In reality, that's not true. The illusion of learning through watching, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. This evening at 7, following says you... This evening would have been opening night at Kumukuhua Theater for the local play The Conversion of Kahumanu. It's been postponed due to the concern about large groups gathering. We talked to Donna Blanchard, managing director of Kumukuhua Theater last week, during the height of uncertainty leading up to putting the production off. First of all, we're keeping an eye on the news. We're listening to what the CDC is telling us and what the state is telling us. And I'm staying in touch with the Theater Communications Group, which is a national organization for theaters. I'm talking with other theaters in the area. And in w- actually within the building, we are using a lot of disinfecting wipes. Uh, we've figured out how to go ticketless for the show, so there will be no exchange there. Uh, We haven't quite figured out the cash situation, but most people don't pay with cash. Uh, We sell concessions at intermission, and we're going to 
uh, um, give our volunteers gloves to wear and ask that if someone's buying a soda for a dollar, they just put the dollar in the bin and then we're going to wear gloves when we count that up. We're going to wipe down all of the armrests for the chairs. And, we're, you know, in a theater, so we've all heard that you're supposed to stay six feet away from people. In a theater, that's not easy, but we are considering reducing the number of seats that we have all together so that all of our seats have a clearance of a few feet at least on either side of them. Okay, so just figure, hey, the carrying capacity may normally be whatever, 50, 70, but we're going to scale that back. Another measure that we're taking, I've always had a policy for employees that if you don't feel well, stay home and take care of yourself. It helps all of us if you do that. Uh, that is definitely still in place for this show and also with our cast and crew. And thus far, no one is showing any symptoms to worry about on our team. I feel uh, it's incumbent on me as the managing director of the theater to look out for everyone in the staff and in the cast and the crew as well as our audiences. I don't want anyone to say Yes, there's so many cases on the island, and the common denominator among them is Kumukuhua Theater. I do not want that to happen. Right, and I think there is that um, sense of responsibility that people just genuinely have because they care. They don't want to spread the disease if they have it, you know, not knowing, right? And uh, and if they are in an event, they certainly don't want to hurt our kapuna and, and, and be kind of spreading it around. And, and so as we see these you know, warnings go out and we see the cancellations. You know, I think uh, Broadway, I think, is going dark, isn't it? Yeah. All of Broadway, all of their theaters. So what I'm considering is we're recommended to not gather, have large groups of people gather. And so immediately I started looking into, well, what constitutes a large group? And New York City says that's 500 people or more. Chicago says that's 250 people or more. And the state of Ohio says that's 100 people or more. We currently seat 100 in our little black box theater. Um, We're also considering, are there options to have a show outside? Yeah, because when you're in a, you know, when you're outside, you're safer. The fresh air will help. It's just the surfaces that people are touching that you have to worry about so much. Well, let's talk about this upcoming production, uh, because, you know, I think the wonderful thing about your theater is that you have these original uh, plays about Hawaii, and you've got some really interesting history here. Oh, yeah. We're in our 49th season now, producing theater written by and about people here. Our upcoming show is called The Conversion of Ka'ahumanu. It's written by Victoria Nalani Nubel, and it's the story of Christianity being adopted in Hawaii. And so so talk about that for people who may not be familiar about how she was converted. Oh, well, she Queen Ka'ahumanu had pretty much had it with the old gods and was looking, was ripe for something new when the missionaries uh, were here talking about this new way that wouldn't involve, wouldn't be, involve capital punishment, let's say, that that was experienced on the island before then. And I'm not giving anything away. That's <laughs> part of the history of it. But the timing was ripe for her to be looking for something. And there they were with something to offer her that was attractive. And then Vicki Noble has 
produced a number of wonderful number of productions. You know, she wrote this, oh, forgive me, Vicki, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe 20-ish. And, it, you know, it, there's a lot of feminism in this play. It's a, it's a really beautiful time for it now. It's part of the reason why Harry decided to put it on our stage. Now, Harry Wong, our artistic director. Uh, for Vicki, I'll have to let her speak for herself, but my understanding is it's, it is just a really interesting story. It's a story that deserves to be told. And Vicky does a really wonderful job of not defining a villain. I love it when, when a script will not define a villain or at least humanize a villain. And there, there's no villain in this. We may look back on the history and say, ah, way, but there, there were no, there was no malice here. It was everybody doing what they thought was right and good. And that includes the old ways as well as the quote-unquote new. If I recall right, um, I think, um, you know, Vicky's family has ties with um, Kauaiho Church, and, you know, so she has that kind of dimension mm. in telling, you know, this story about Hawaii's history. And, you know, it is a, a Women's History Month, so it, it's really kind of a nice timing. Yeah, yeah, and our last show was about Captain Cook, and it ran, we were running on Cook Day. <laughs> we like it when things like that work out. Harry does a really good job of making that happen. Unfortunately, we have COVID-19. We were talking to Donna Blanchard of Kumakahua Theater. We interviewed her just before the CDC directive came out that there be no crowds of no more than 50. And then two days later, that got reduced to 10. So stay tuned to see when the conversion of Kahumanu will be rescheduled. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Freshman Direct Admit Program, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Japan 2020 Olympics be postponed or canceled? A lot of people are asking that question this week. Lots of dreams could be dashed if they aren't held. As in years past, the Olympic Games will be followed by uh, two weeks uh, after by the Paralympics, the Games for Athletes with Disabilities. This year's Paralympics is scheduled for August 25th to September 6th. Kaleo Kanahele McClay is a setter for Team USA's sitting volleyball team. She's only 24 years old, but already has two medals from the Paralympic Games, including gold in 2016. Born with a club foot, the native Hawaiian has played both standing and sitting volleyball competitively. She spoke with the conversations Jason Ubai from her home in Oklahoma, and she explained the main differences between the two versions of the game. Sitting volleyball is basically an adaptive sport. 
also for people with physical disabilities. Um, so personally, I was born with clubfoot, which actually runs in my family. But so sitting volleyball is we are all on the ground. Um, we have the same movements. We run plays. We just do it from our bottoms and our hands, and we move around like that. But the big differences between sitting volleyball and standing volleyball is um, the net is shorter and the court is shorter. So it's all just brought down to a condensed version of the standing court that everyone's pretty familiar with. And so with that, we have, the, so the calls that would be basically on your feet in the in standing game, so the line calls are on your butt. Um, and then with the net being shorter, we can also block a serve. So those are really like the big differences between sitting volleyball and standing volleyball. And sitting volleyball has come a long way, and we really run it like you would play standing volleyball. So I'm the setter, and we run a 5-1. So we have six people on the court, but one setter, um, and then basically five hitters or libero. And it, other than that, it really runs like the standing game. The speed, though, it seems uh, a lot faster because it's a same-size ball, and you're just kind of on a smaller court? Yeah, so since the distance is shorter of where the ball is going, so from the pass to the set to the swing, um, it all goes so much faster. So for us, a point could last up to a minute would be going over the net at least like five or six times. So the game is just sped up compared to the standing game, which makes it more intense, quicker reaction times, quicker blocking times. So really, the game is just sped up so quick and there for a while I was playing both, so I was able to feel the difference in playing sitting and standing. If you could tell me about yourself, I know you said you were born with a club foot and you, you played both, but uh, if you could tell me a bit about your background and then how you got into sitting volleyball. My family's from Hawaii, but we moved to Oklahoma when I was very young, and so I really grew up in Oklahoma, and a lot of my cousins had club feet, but really I didn't know anyone with a club foot. Um, other than family in Hawaii. And so growing up in Oklahoma, this is actually where the sitting volleyball teams came whenever our coach, Bill Hammeter, took over. So I was playing standing volleyball. I started playing standing volleyball at 10. And during that time, uh, I was really having to adapt to the standing game and being able to jump, basically missing a calf muscle. And, and so that just brought challenges. So the club I played for... Bill Hammeter was one of the coaches for Oklahoma Peak Performance, which was the standing club I played for at the time. And he knew of my disability. He knew I had club foot and what my limitations were in standing volleyball. And then he introduced me to sitting volleyball. So I actually started on the sitting team when I was 12. So I started playing volleyball when I was 10, started playing city volleyball when I was 12, went to a camp, went to tournaments, went to China, and then made the London 2012 roster. So, yeah, it's been a long time of training, but it was really fun. And I started playing sitting volleyball when I was 12, so I was in middle school. So I still played club all the way through high school, played um, for my high school team. We won state and really had to balance playing sitting volleyball and being a Paralympian as well as being a teenager and, and playing club and for my school. So how old were you when you went? When you made the Paralympic team for London? When I made the London Paralympic team, I was 16. And then whenever I was in Rio, I was 20. Can you tell me more about that? How was that experience? Yeah, in London, I, I was 16, so I was really young and had kind of 
trained hard, but more of just enjoyed the sport and learning volleyball in a different way. So I wasn't a starter at the time. I was actually extremely surprised that I made the roster to go to London. So I was really at the time just a practice player and learning my role on the team was the cheerleader from the bench. So I was able to go to London and have this larger-than-life experience going to opening ceremonies, being around other Paralympic athletes and other people that I've looked up to my whole life. And then on our play, we ended up with a silver medal, but in the gold medal match, I actually got to play, which was at the time very crazy to me. So I played the last five points, which we lost against China, and we had lost against China, our team, since the Paralympics began and city volleyball began for women. So we lost to China in the finals, and we got a silver medal, which was incredible at the time, but we had always wanted this this gold medal was our dream, obviously. And, and so after that tournament, I really decided I was going to give everything that I could to this sport to train for that gold medal and to be the athlete that I wanted to be and not necessarily just this practice player who was just happy to be there, but I wanted to help my team get a gold medal. So really the next four years were me practicing every day, going to school, going to practice, and training for that gold medal. So whenever Rio came around, I, rather than just going in and being excited just to be there, I went in with a whole mission, a mission to beat, um, to do it as a team, but to beat China in the finals because that's what we knew was going to happen. So we actually ended up losing to China in um, pool play. And so we had quite a few practices during the tournament and then, ended up beating them, beating China in the finals and won our first gold medal. So vindication, at least got to win when it mattered. So what is your mindset for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics? From going from London or from London to Rio, we were, um, we called it chasing the giant, chasing China, trying to beat this team. And from London or from Rio to Tokyo, now we are that giant. We are the team that everyone else is trying to beat. So our mindset um, these past four years has really been to be the bar, to be to raise the bar even, to be the team that everyone wants to beat, but not stay where we were, but become better and a more efficient, well-rounded, put-together team. So in Tokyo, no one will be able to hang with us. So that's really our goal. There has been so much training and time put in, not just on the court, but off the court as well. I think it's one thing to to just win a gold medal, and then it's another thing to win a gold medal as a cohesive unit, which is what we're preparing for. With the coronavirus in the news right now, how is that affecting your training, or is that uh, on your mind as uh, as we get closer to the games? Coronavirus has been a big concern, and we actually get weekly updates as to what the USOPC, which is the Olympic and Paralympic Committee, um, and their understanding and what the doctors are saying and all of the information that they really have to give us. Because of the coronavirus, we had a, a tournament that was scheduled to be in China, um, now moved to Egypt, and will now be potentially canceled. So for us, it's hard as of now because these are, these are big tournaments that we want to be a part of and will help our, us getting ready for Tokyo 
but also we're thankful that everyone's being sensitive to this disease that could potentially affect us all. So I think I'm thankful that our government and our team is looking out for us and just hoping that it goes away or disperses by Tokyo. I want to go back. You've lived here uh, in Hawaii before? Yeah, my husband and I actually lived, my husband Duke and I actually lived in Hawaii for about a year um, this past year. So we moved to Hawaii because we felt honestly led to a church in Hawaii, and we loved it, and it was incredible, um, inspired church, and we um, we were really excited to move. I, I, being Native Hawaiian, had always wanted to, to live in Hawaii because I felt a leading there. I felt like that's where I wish I would have grown up even, um, but it was just incredible to be a part of the culture, and... I, living in Hawaii, we have like halals and people that we've been involved with who are Hawaiian, but I never was able to live there. Um, so really being able to, to live in Hawaii, um, be there, train, be around the people, being around my family was really cool and a great experience. Our, our leading to move back was um, my mom, and she got sick, so we wanted to come back to be here with her as well as training with the team to prepare for Tokyo. Tokyo coming up, uh, that'll be your third Paralympic Games. How many do you mm-hmm. uh, see yourself playing in? Uh, I mean, you already got three and you're <laughs> under 25, so how many do you think you can uh, play in in your career? I really don't know. I now having a son, I want more kids, so a lot of it's going to be around that and learning how to manage um, all these different aspects of life, but but yeah, Paris, I would love to go to Paris or, or stay for L.A. You know, it's hard to plan that far away, but, but I'm excited to go to Tokyo and then just see what happens after that. And that was Kaleo Kanahele McClay, setter for Team USA's sitting volleyball team. Tomorrow we take a look at the prospects for Olympic beach volleyball as we close out the week. And that's it for today. Friday, we will be talking about the snapshot of shipping. Items on restock shelves just keep disappearing. Kokua, please. Don't hoard people. Give us some feedback. Got questions about the coronavirus or anything else you may have heard on our air? Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>